Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, the workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Living with Merkel Cell Carcinoma. And today's program is an important one. It's actually part one of a two-part series. Um, and today's program is actually, actually focus of that one is on treatment perspectives on Merkel Cell Carcinoma, or MCC. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And um, I just want to let you know we have a lot of people on the call today, but considering the fact that Merkel cell carcinoma is not the most common cancer that exists. Um, so we have over 210 participants on the call today. And we also, and from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, Caracas, India, Portugal, and United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global, global call as well. Today's program is supported by EMD Serrano, and I want to thank them for their support. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Is Dr. Paul Niem, and Dr. Niem is Professor and Head University of Washington Dermatology, George F. Odlin Endowed Chair, Affiliate Investigator, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, Professor Adjunct of Pathology and Oral Health Sciences, Clinical Director, Skin Oncology, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Niam will be addressing what is Merkel cell carcinoma, or MCC, symptoms of Merkel cell carcinoma, diagnosis and staging, current standard of care for early stage Merkel cell cancer, including radiation treatment, and the role of surgery in the treatment of MCC. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my distinguished colleague, uh, Dr. Niam. Hi, greetings. Good morning, good afternoon, depending on where we are here in Seattle. It's still morning. Um, very happy. I'm delighted to hear so many people from around the world are interested in this cancer. I um, share, and I, we haven't mentioned Dr. Vern Sondak, but he will get fully uh, introduced in a moment, I'm sure. But it's a great pleasure to join Vern this morning and, and think about this. This is a cancer that he and I have, have shared an interest in, in in for years, and I think we would both agree that it's a cancer that is tricky, it's a little different than other kinds of cancers, and learning about it can really help with how likely a person is to get care that deals with the cancer properly and doesn't have a bunch of extra unnecessary side effects. So my task is in now my remaining maybe 13 minutes to, to touch on what is Merkel cell carcinoma symptoms diagnosis current standards and, and the role of surgery. So this is a cancer, Merkel cell carcinoma, that is almost always arises in the skin, and it's often caused by a virus that we only have known about for a little more than 10 years. 
It's a really common virus on our normal skin, most people's normal skin, and fortunately it does nothing wrong to a person except in around 1 in 3,000 people in their lifetime will get this cancer um, driven by the virus. And uh, it's a cancer that, again, needs some special attention. It's a bit more likely to spread than the other skin cancers. And it can be, again, caused by the virus or it can be caused entirely without the virus. And interestingly, in Australia, the prevalence, the fraction of people who have the virus is much lower. In the United States, it's about 80% of Merkel tumors are caused by the virus and in Australia it's more like 30 or 40% because they have so much sunlight and many people with with fair skin. So, but at any rate, at any given in any country it can be virus or sunlight and uh basically we treat the two um flavors of Merkel cell carcinoma the same way. Uh, and I'll mention a little bit about that, and Dr. Sondak will as well in a few minutes. Uh, symptoms of Merkel cell carcinoma, this is a tricky point. I think most patients are already very familiar with this. Unfortunately, a Merkel cell carcinoma looks like a very bland, uninteresting bump on the skin, especially when it's early. And when these present to doctors, they will often say, don't worry about it, it's a cyst or it's um, it's nothing, um, or it's just a folliculitis or something. That's a tricky thing, and oftentimes patients then need to make some noise and get, um, uh, get the biopsy done. Under the microscope, it's quite straightforward most of the time for a pathologist to say this biopsy is a Merkel cell carcinoma. And uh, at that point, it may have, in about a third of cases, it may have spread somewhere else in the body. Um, and now we're kind of moving into diagnosis and staging. You basically can't make the diagnosis by just looking at the skin. And you need a biopsy. And then the staging is technical. We're not going there today, but broadly, of course, this cancer, like any cancer, can be limited to the site where the cancer arose, or it could have jumped to the skin nearby, or it could go to lymph nodes a little bit farther away, or it could go to distant sites. That's true of any kind of cancer. Merkel, compared to the other skin cancers, is a little bit more likely to be a little bit more advanced. And so paying attention to the official staging system is very helpful in figuring out a person's risk that the cancer will come back or not. Then current standard of care for early stage Merkel cell carcinoma, um, including radiation treatment. So now we get into a really particularly tricky area, uh, and that is not agreed on by everybody. I think <laughs> Dr. Sondak and I will, will, will be quick to say there's a lot of controversy here. Most people will want to get the cancer out with surgery initially. That is pretty broadly agreed upon. A process that we use in the United States very often, and it's not used in Australia and elsewhere in the, in the world often, is called a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And in that approach, uh, 
one injects a little bit of a radioactive dye right next to where the tumor is, and that will spread to the nearby lymph node that is connected to that piece of skin where the cancer arose. And that piece of uh, that lymph node then is taken out by a surgeon and looked at very carefully under a microscope. And uh, about a third of the time, and there's multiple studies to suggest that's about the, about the chance here, and that's a pretty high chance, one in, one in three, microscopically there will already be some Merkel cell carcinoma cells in the lymph nodes. And in the United States, again, we do this technique. We, we think it's very helpful in figuring out whether the cancer has spread or not. <clears throat> Uh, but another aspect of, of staging would be a scan, and again, this is controversial, uh, but uh, a lot of times a, a baseline PET scan or CT scan is done to look for involvement in the lymph nodes or beyond, and we believe that's pretty important. It's becoming more and more accepted that a baseline scan is, is part of initial uh, treatment. And then the trickiest, most controversial thing probably is how much radiation do you do after you do a basic surgery, a basic, uh, uh, you know, excision of, of the tumor that you can see and perhaps some normal skin around it. Who needs to get radiation and who doesn't? Extremely controversial. Suffice it to say, about half of all patients in the United States will get some radiation in addition to surgery at their primary site. And there's a lot of factors. Dr. Sondak is, I think, planning on talking about some of those that would make it more a more risky situation or a less risky situation. As you're more worried, you'd be more likely to give some radiation to that primary site. And of course, if the lymph nodes are involved, then you would do some radiation treatment there or some surgery there as well. And then the, the final topic um, is the role of surgery in the treatment of Merkel cell carcinoma. So that I've kind of hit on a bit. We like to, and I suspect Dr. Sandek, who, is a, who focuses on surgery, again, I'm mostly a dermatologist, so my little joke about myself is I'm like an orchestra conductor. I don't do the surgery. I don't infuse the IV drugs, and I don't do the radiation. So I just am kind of there to help conduct the orchestra and, and, you know, try and help help people get the right kind of care. Um, uh, Dr. Sondak knows the details of surgery and, and such because that's, that's his focus, and, of course, he focuses on the disease more broadly as well. But I think we would both agree the surgery is important in getting out the bulk of the tumor initially, and then we get into a more controversial area in terms of who gets radiation and who doesn't and just exactly how big the surgeon should go beyond the edge of what he or she sees as as the tumor. So I kind of have hit on my basic topics. I think I'd rather, you know, move on and, and let Dr. Sondak comment on his, and then we can come back to areas that we uh, that, that people have questions about or we feel that haven't been um, addressed properly. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Neen. That was really wonderful, a wonderful introduction to the call and lots of good information for everybody to absorb. So terrific. And our next speaker then is uh, Dr. Vernon Sondak. Uh, Dr. Sondak is Richard M. Schultz, Distinguished Endowed Chair in Cutaneous Oncology, Moffitt Cancer Center, Professor University of South Florida, Moff Marsani College of Medicine, Department of Oncology Sciences. 
and Dr. Sondek is going to address treatment for metastatic Merkel cell carcinoma, including radiation treatment, clinical trial updates, managing side effects and pain, key questions to ask the MCC specialist on your healthcare team, including communication tips, and preparing for your appointment and follow-up care. So it's now my great uh, privilege to turn this program over to my distinguished colleague, Dr. Sondek. Well, thank you, and thank you, Paul, for that terrific uh, synopsis of this uh, challenging disease. Uh, it's a rare disease. It's not unusual that when patients come to our cancer center, they say, my doctor had not ever seen a case like this before, or I'm one of the first they've ever seen, and they come to centers like ours and Paul's at the University of Washington, and they're in a whole waiting room full of people. So it's not as rare as it used to be, but it's certainly a, uh, a cancer that uh, has benefited from a specialized approach where people with expertise have been able to um, learn from each other and learn from our patients by having a more concentrated, multidisciplinary approach to cancer. And we're seeing amazing changes in all of oncology, but especially in the management of every type of skin cancer, Merkel cell cancer, um, melanoma, basal and squamous cell cancers. The treatment has changed dramatically. Surgery used to be the, the foundation for everything. Radiation was used in a, as a backup role, and if we had to do chemotherapy treatments, it was often too little, too late. Now we have seen a tremendous shift in um, the treatment options that are available, the side effects that are associated with treatment, and the effectiveness of treatment. No longer are we limited to a few options. We now have options across the whole spectrum of, um, of cancer care including in more advanced cases, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But what I want to emphasize is that increasingly, the thing that we as experts wind up discussing, debating, uh, focusing on when we discuss patients in our multidisciplinary tumor boards is not, do we do treatment or what treatment? It's which treatment do we do first? What do we do next? What's the sequence of treatments rather than go it alone with one treatment or another? So surgery still often is the first treatment, but not always. Radiation is frequently done after surgery, but not always. And the new member of the treatment team in Merkel cell cancer is immune therapy. Um, immune therapy has been used for many years in the treatment of melanoma, and many of us, like myself, take care of melanoma patients as well as Merkel cell patients. So it wasn't um, that far of a stretch for us to use immune therapy in Merkel cell cancer, and we were really amazed at how well it worked in some patients. So uh, the specific kind of immune treatment that has become so commonplace in the management of more advanced cases of Merkel cell cancer are drugs that are referred to as either anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1 
antibodies. Um, PD-1 and PD-L1 are, are basically two sides of the same coin. They are the receptor and its ligand, meaning they are the lock and the key that um, trigger a pathway that de, um, deactivates the immune system. And so if we can block this pathway, we reactivate the immune system. And it's, it's really quite remarkable that just one little pathway, if we can interfere in one pathway, that we can get such dramatic responses that we've seen. And what's even more um, impressive, amazing, is that the side effects of that aren't as bad as we might have feared. Uh, there's no question that when you activate, when you uh, regulate the immune system upward or downward, there are side effects, there are consequences. And sometimes in some patients, we rev the immune system up too much and we get side effects from that. But um, the, these particular drugs um, that we've been using in Merkel cell cancer, on the spectrum of, of cancer drugs globally, really fall on the high end for effectiveness and on the high end for being relatively non-toxic. They should be given by doctors who are experienced. They should be given with an appropriate recognition that side effects can and will occur, but they are generally manageable and they're important to manage um, quickly because the sooner you start management, usually the sooner you'll start seeing benefit and you can limit uh, uh, the consequences. Fortunately, these drugs, which are so active in Merkel cell cancer, are also active in other forms of cancer. Melanoma, I mentioned, lung cancer, bladder cancer, m multiple other forms of cancer. So it's no longer a, um, a niche uh, property that only a few doctors are familiar with. We're finding increasingly across the country and across the world that physicians have gotten a lot of experience in using these immune therapy drugs and most importantly in managing the side effects and limiting the consequences of them. So let's talk a little bit about when do we use immune therapy. We use immunotherapy now as our first choice, our first line of defense, when Merkel cell has spread beyond the lymph nodes to other organs, what we would call metastatic Merkel cell, advanced stage or stage four uh, cancer. Our first choice for treatment whenever possible is uh, immune therapy with one of these drugs. Why wouldn't it be possible? Well, if someone already has a condition where the immune system is um, is a, a problem, there is overactive, or where a person had an organ transplant or something that we wouldn't want to boost the immune system. Those are difficult and challenging cases, but outside of those, and even in some of those cases, uh, in very specialized centers under very careful supervision, we can use immune therapy, but that's a, a, a different discussion. In general, we try to avoid stimulating the immune system in certain 
conditions, but 90 plus percent of patients are able to uh, receive this type of treatment. In clinical trials today, we are asking the question, should we be using these immune drugs that are working so well in advanced disease earlier on at the time uh, when the tumor is initially diagnosed after surgery to prevent the Merkel cell from coming back? Or in some cases, should we use these drugs before surgery in order to shrink tumors and uh, make surgery easier and more effective. So as I said at the beginning, increasingly what we are working with, collaborating, discussing among ourselves is not do we use these drugs, but what are the sequence of treatments that we're going to use. For today, as we sit here on this phone call today, most of the things I've just been talking about, the use of immune therapy to prevent the tumor from coming back or the use of immune therapy prior to surgery to shrink tumors would be considered uh, investigational and the property of a clinical trial or a research study. Not a 100%, but, but in general. And so it shouldn't just be done routinely. It should be done on a clinical trial. And there are several clinical trials around the country, around the world, testing these exact principles. Let's turn a little bit more detail into the side effects that we were, we were alluding to. All of the side effects of immune therapy can be boiled down to boosting the immune system more than we wanted it to be, be turned on to the point that it starts to attack uh, normal tissue as if it were foreign. Um, and that can range literally head to toe. Um, it's almost always the case that if we look closely enough, we will see that when we boost the immune system with these um, very powerful drugs, there's at least some effect in the skin, some degree of a rash, some degree of immune infiltration in the skin. Um, usually that's not a big problem for patients and physicians. It's usually something we can manage. It's rarely, not never, but rarely the limiting type of um, uh, side effect. More worrisome are the internal uh, immune side effects if the um, immunity is turned up so much that it starts to attack the liver, the intestines, um, the lungs, um, even the endocrine organs, the glands like the thyroid gland or the pituitary gland or the pancreas where insulin is made and it regulates uh, our sugars and, um, and can lead to diabetes if it's damaged. All of those, every one of those things that I just mentioned has been seen at least occasionally in patients receiving these immune-boosting drugs when for whatever reason the immune system went overboard and started to attack normal organs um, uh, instead of uh, the cancer or in addition to the cancer. The management of these side effects is pretty straightforward. We've boosted the immune system too much. We've got to tune it back down. Our top tool in doing that is steroid drugs. 
that's usually one of the best um, drugs for um, lowering an immune system that's too active. So steroids are almost always used. Sometimes we can use them for just a short period of time, taper them down, and the effect, side effects go away, but the beneficial effects remain. Other times, steroids need to be used for a longer period of time. Still, other times, we need additional drugs uh, to suppress the immune system, in particular um, organs, the liver, for example. The steroids are usually not enough if we see uh, inflammation in the liver. Um, but in general, the physicians have developed a pretty good set of tools for managing um, the side effects that come from these um, immune-stimulating drugs. If it does affect the, the uh, endocrine system, the hormone deficiencies can require long-term, sometimes even lifetime um, hormone replacement, thyroid hormones in particular. But if it's um, uh, diabetes, it can require insulin long-term, etc. So I don't want to give anyone the this, this sense that these drugs are completely without side effects, but I also wouldn't want to give anyone the impression that these drugs are so toxic that we should avoid them when they're necessary. In appropriate uh, cases, there literally can be miracle drugs with acceptable side effects. So um, I'm going to turn now uh, in the last couple of minutes of my talk to just how do we uh, discuss the um, planning of the healthcare uh, team? How do we interact with the team and patient physician, patient caregiver interactions so that your appointments, your follow up care, your treatment decision making can be as effective as possible? Number one, I think it starts with knowing that the doctor that you're taking, uh, that, that you're seeing for your care, has some expertise and experience with Merkel cell cancer. In today's world, there are enough nuances here. Uh, it's a challenging enough disease, and there are so many good treatments that you should be seeing somebody who has at least a, a, a basic familiarity with Merkel cell cancer. If they're not familiar with it, if you need to get somebody more experienced, go get a second opinion from a major medical center with experience in this uh, disease. Number two is the understanding that no one doctor has all the answers, even at a major medical center. Dermatologists, surgical oncologists, plastic surgeons, uh, head and neck surgeons, radiation oncologists, and medical oncologists, and many others, but those are the top um, uh, specialties of, involved in Merkel cell cancer in most cases, should all be working together. Obviously, not every patient is going to need to see every one of those specialists, but most patients need more than one specialist across the lifetime of care, across the entire care continuum. So expect and prepare for um, a multidisciplinary treatment plan. Um, 
a need to see multiple specialists. At some major centers, you can see multiple people in the same day, but it's not unusual that you'd need to visit with multiple different doctors on different days before a final plan is arrived at. Um, and so I think you should always be prepared to ask the question, what are the alternatives? What are my options? What if I don't do this and I try to do that? Why should I do this? Ask questions. Um, physicians don't have all the answers, um, but they have a lot of answers in this disease. So be prepared to ask questions, to relate to your um, doctors, what's most important to you, um, and be prepared for the possibility that they may say, you know, you're asking a great question and we don't know the right answer to that. And so we have research going on in that exact area and we'd like you to be part of a clinical trial. Or we are studying Merkel cell biology and we would like permission to use a bit of your tumor or draw some of your blood purely for research purposes. You don't have to do it, but be prepared for that possibility and think about it. We've certainly seen uh, huge progress in this disease through that kind of research, and, um, and it's something you should certainly consider being a part of. And the final thing I'll say um, is be prepared for essentially a lifetime of follow-up. You may not need to go to the specialized center for the rest of your life. In fact, quite often now with Merkel cell cancer, after the initial treatment and after the treatment plan is well established, we can return patients to their doctor closer to home and, and do that comfortably because we can say um, this drug is one that's now well known enough by an oncologist in your hometown that we can recommend you have your treatment there. Um, but follow-up is, is long-term and essentially lifetime in the sense that if you've had one form of skin cancer, you can get other forms of skin cancer. The sun didn't just shine on one part on your body. And uh, long-term protecting yourself from the sun and monitoring your skin and having a dermatologist monitor your skin for other skin cancers is pretty much a lifetime thing once a diagnosis of Merkel cell cancer or almost any skin cancer has been made. So uh, I think with that, I'll, I'll wrap up. I recognize these are sort of general comments, but uh, that's what we're trying to do here today is give a general outline of uh, where we are today in Merkel cell cancer and uh, and go from there. Carolyn? Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Sontek. That was really wonderful and really, again, more very comprehensive and just um, lots of good facts for people to know. And we will take questions in just a minute. I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care services, and then we're going to take um, as many of your questions as we can. Um, so we want to be sure we leave lots of time. So start thinking of your questions. Some of you are posting them already, um, but um, we definitely want to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, cancer Care is a national organization. It provides free support services to people living with all cancers, including Merkel cell cancer as well. Um, and those services include both 
practical and financial assistance, so practical meaning perhaps helpless transportation to a treatment center, um, financial help with all the different things that you might need help with in terms of finances. Um, and we also do provide um, a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers, and that would involve really just, I mean, you could talk to them on the phone or online. You can post a question also on our website, and the social worker will get back to you. And that is uh, appropriate for anybody both um, in, in the United States and internationally. The financial assistance is, is for people in the U.S., but all the other services are available to everybody all over the country and world to some extent. Um, and um, so, and you may also each be in very different parts of the country and, and rural areas where there may not be as many services for you. So many people find it very helpful. Even in urban centers, it just might not be the services that you need um, for support. Um, and what does that support mean? Well, one is just a chance to talk with somebody who really listens to you about your concerns and helps you to kind of figure out next steps and what to do. And the other is we also offer um, support groups, both on the telephone and online. And we have, I have to say, our online telephone support groups have grown exponentially. Um, I think we have about 138 of them right now. So it's a lot of support groups on the phone, and they're for all different um, types of cancers, also different ages. So for young adults, um, middle-aged adults, older adults, and older adults include lots of different age spectrums in terms of older adults, um, uh, for caregivers, um, spouses, partners, friends. So we have groups for almost everything you can imagine. If we don't have a group that you're asking for, we probably will try to create that for you. So that's that's another thing um, because um, you may identify a need when you call us. So in, in order to get services from Cancer Care, just simply have to call us on the phone or you can actually go to our website. Um, and at the end of today's call, you'll be getting all of our resources. Well, actually, when you get the evaluations, which will probably be on Monday, um, they will include all of the resources. And I think many of you who've registered the program already have our website information, all those tools, but you'll get them again and any other information that we may want to mention during the call, any other resources um, that we think might be very useful to, to have. Um, and in addition to this, we also do have, like many organizations, um, a lot of fact sheets and publications that you can access. And we also have um, these type of programs. So we welcome you to participate in these programs as well. And with that being said, we now have time for questions. So I'm going to ask um, uh, Norma to bring all of our speakers on board. And I'm going to also um, ask Norma to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions so we can try to take as many of your questions as possible. Norma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by asking by clicking ask a question. Okay. Again, to ask a, a question, please press star 1. So we have a question for our online participants. Um, so you can ask them both on the phone or online. Um, so um, have you ever seen – well, I'm actually going to ask Dr. Um, Nian to start with this one. Um, have you ever seen a clear PET scan, even though on an MCC lesion was visible on the, on the skin? The answer is yes. Um, and no test is perfect. Um, a PET scan is certainly not perfect. Um, the vast, for the most part, a PET scan is a superior method to a CT. Uh, it, it is a little bit more sensitive, uh, so it's probably our best imaging um, approach now. But a small fraction of Merkels do not 
use sugar in the normal way that most cancers do, and that is the way that a PET scan shows up a lesion, basically, is by the use of, of sugar. And let me be really quick, and I'm sure Dr. Sondek would be there too, Stopping eating sugar will not cure your cancer. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't True. eat sugar. You shouldn't eat sugar because it's just generally not good for you. It causes diabetes, et cetera, et cetera, in, in, in excess kind of thing. But um, don't don't freak out the fact that that you know your brain uses a lot of sugar. You, you, I think you need your brain. <laughs> so the so sugar use is not all bad. But um, uh, yes, there's a subset of Merkels that don't use sugar in the normal way, and they they just don't show up. Uh, they're rare, um, but they can happen. Also, a tumor, if it's under about a half a centimeter or under a green pea, the size of a green pea, you, it's very difficult to see these things in many cases. So, yes, um, a, a PET scan can be, this is what we call falsely negative. When we know the tumor is there, um, uh, for example, on the skin, it can also be falsely negative very routinely if the tumor is just smaller than uh, something like a green pea. So PET scans are very useful, but uh, they have limitations. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Sondak, do you want to add anything to that as well? No, I think that, you know, I would emphasize that a PET scan is a great tool in an appropriate situation. We don't use it in everybody. Um, and it can't replace looking at things under the microscope. So for in particular, when we see a localized Merkel cell or just diagnosed on the skin, um, the lump itself or the, the nodule of Merkel cell has been removed, we would not expect the PET scan to detect anything at that time, even though, as Dr. Nyam said, 30% of the time there's something in the lymph nodes, but the PET scan's negative. It's negative because we're not looking for a green pea in the lymph node. We're looking for 14 cancer cells in the lymph node until that lymph node is out and being examined by the pathologist under the microscope. That's not going to be found on any form of scan. Um, that's why uh, we we still need surgical techniques and other approaches besides just a PET scan. Well, thank you. That was a great first question and great answers. Thank you very much. And we have a telephone question now, Norma. Thank you. And our first question from the phone lines is Marianne P. Your line is open. Hello, Marianne. Marianne, you may ask your question. Wait, I had myself on mute. Sorry. Oh, okay. um, good to have you on, Marion. Yes. Uh, yeah, I have a question for both physicians. Can you talk about the long-term care of Merkel cell patients with autoimmune diseases? I've gone through the successful surgery, radiation, chemo. I'm three years clear, but now I'm going to have to start to do um, uh, steroids for a flare-up. So can you see with all these... Uh, immunoregulators, how that might work somehow, someday in the future for those with autoimmune diseases. Yeah. So, uh, as I said, when we start dealing with an, a, an immune system that's already hyperactive, then boosting that immunity further can be a potential problem. Um, we always have to balance the risks and the benefits of what we do. 
Um, if if the cancer is immediately life-threatening, we may accept the risk of a flare of the autoimmune uh, disease as a uh, as a necessary evil. And sometimes the uh, drugs don't lead to a flare, but most of the time they will make the immunity worse. And whether it's psoriasis or um, uh, colitis or any kind of autoimmune disease, any of these drugs can make it worse. One thing that is a problem is if a person is already on very high doses of steroids, well, the drugs are not going to work very well because those steroids are, are turning off the immune system that we're trying to turn on. So the first thing we look at is can we get the person on a, a very low dose of steroids or none at all before we even start treatment? If we can't do that, it's going to be very difficult to use these drugs successfully. But if we can, we can try them. And then if there's a flare, we can use some steroids afterward to try to minimize the consequences. Um, I will say that it, if somebody has any degree of autoimmunity uh, pre-existing before they go on treatment, or if someone has a organ transplant of any kind, in those situations, it's absolutely imperative that they're being taken care of in a specialized center. That's a person who can't just go to their local oncologist and get treatment because this is a complicated and difficult situation. And could you describe the, um, the specialized centers? So it would be NCI-designated uh, cancer centers, um, or do you want to just specify the centers, what that means? Or I don't think that there is one size that fits all, and Paul might be even in a better position to comment because he's kept track of centers all around the, the country and around the world. I think it starts with a team approach of multiple specialists working together, and it, it starts with a commitment to uh, research and and specialization in this disease. Paul, you want to comment? Yeah, thanks, Vern. Um, I completely agree. And, you know, you said a bunch of wonderful things, Vern, earlier that I wanted to come back along these lines. You emphasized the need for multidisciplinary care. And there is no, I'll say it again because it just bears repeating, there's no one doctor who can manage Merkel cell carcinoma properly, certainly not including myself, even though I just do this in a kind of monomaniacal way. We really need a lot of <laughs> we really need a lot of uh input from our colleagues who are surgeons, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, and frankly, we need subspecialty surgeons and such in order to take care of a given person. And so my comment as we start talking about, well, where do you get your care and such, uh, you need to go someplace where you feel comfortable, where you feel they're going to be they're knowledgeable about what's going on, uh, and they work in a multidisciplinary way, and that they're paying attention to what's current. And if you don't, you either don't feel comfortable, or you think maybe this isn't right. Get a second opinion from someplace. And and Carolyn, you know, you talk about the major. Um, 20 national comprehensive cancer centers. That's a good starting place. As Vern mentioned, we have tried on our MerkelCell.org website to have a list of 
specialists, um, um, Merkel cell carcinoma specialists, and all of those people have kind of promised they're going to do the stuff that Vern and I have been saying is important. They're going to work as a team. They're going to stay updated. They're going to follow you over time. They're not just going to do one shot, like I'm going to do this one technique, I'm going to do this one procedure, and then I'm done with you. These are centers that are going to take care of people over the longer term. And that's whether you use one of the ones that, that we've listed or you try and find your own. Um, and there are plenty of excellent doctors out there who are eager and willing to learn about a new cancer and collaborate with other people. So you may be, you, you can certainly be fine, um, you know, finding somebody that, you know, isn't necessarily on some list someplace. But uh, you want to listen to the little voice inside of you. This is not, a, as Vern said, it's not a super common cancer. And it does behave a bit differently than others, other cancers and other skin cancers in particular. So you don't want to just kind of make this stuff up as you're going. And you need somebody who's, who's tuned in and paying attention. Uh, so th those would be my high-level comments on those areas. And we're going to also give people that resource of the Merkel cell carcinoma.org um, site so that people can um, check out um, that site and check out the physicians listed there. That would be a good resource to start for someone who might be wanting to get that information. I think great. So we'll be sure to include that. Okay. Um, and we have another question from one of our uh, participants from online participant. Um, so is Merkel cell carcinoma hereditary? Are my children more likely to get Merkel cell carcinoma? Yeah, I can tackle that one. Um, uh, and uh, the answer is no, basically. It's not hereditary in, in a meaningful sense. It's not um, uh, a, high, a particularly high risk. But it's hereditary to a little bit. You know, you have probably a similar skin type in terms of how dark or light your skin is. You may have grown up at the beach or not at the beach as, as with a given family. So just in those kind of uh, simple concepts, there is a higher risk of skin cancer in general um, and thus Merkel cell carcinoma. Uh, and, you know, in the large number of patients that we've followed over the years, we have a handful of families that have um, a Merkel or two in them. But that's pretty much what you'd expect statistically. So the the bottom line is there's not a particular uh, link, and you can reassure the rest of your family that while they should have their skin checked and be careful uh, in general with sun and such, uh, this is not a um, it's not a, a, a cancer that particularly runs in families. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. Um, and um, another question. Um, The question of another online question. Um, so it's about Amerk. A M E R K. Um, is that the best test when Merkel cell cancer doesn't show up on a PET scan? And so that's the Merkel antibody test um, that is available uh, in Paris, France. Um, is, is has has that, and we have that here in Seattle. We try to make it as available. It's not done by my lab, but done by the university here. Uh, and we try to make it as freely available as possible. It's a little bit logistically challenging to order tests from a different university and that's um, or a different center. Uh, so that's, that is a challenge for people. We've studied it extensively. More groups are studying it. Um, it's 
a controversial area. About half of patients at the time they are diagnosed will make those antibodies. It is a sensitive test for the cancer coming back if the person makes antibodies against the virus uh, uh, at the time they have disease. For the patients, for the half of patients that don't make those antibodies, they're at about a 40% higher risk of having their cancer come back, so a modestly higher risk, and then they need to be followed by scans. Um, so the test is only useful for about half of patients uh, after that baseline. We think that's useful to know whether they make the antibodies or not because they definitively need to be followed by scans if they don't, and they can be followed by this test if they do. The question related to PET scans and sensitivity and such, and um, it, it is true that we will often see the antibodies go up before the tumor is visible on on a scan. Uh, in most cases, at the time the antibodies go up, it's visible on a scan, but about a quarter of the cases, the antibodies go up before you can see it on a scan, and then uh, we need to follow those patients closely. So so that's um, it's an emerging area. It was just uh, uh, kind of validated and, and listed in the uh, cancer guidelines last year, and different centers have um, different levels of using the test at this point. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. Um, and a question for Dr. Sontag, one of our online participants. Um, when is surgery alone sufficient for treating Merkel cell carcinoma and no radiation? That's one of the more controversial questions. And as I said, we spend a lot of our time talking about sequencing treatments which treatment to use first, when to use multiple treatments, and when not to. Um, at our center, we um, use radiation in probably between 80 and 85% of our localized Merkel cell uh, cases, which means only uh, 15 or so, 20% of people do we think are ideal for surgery alone with no radiation. What we're looking for are relatively small cancers with no spread to the lymph nodes and no um, uh, lymphovascular invasion. It's something that we can see under the microscope, uh, or, uh, an early sign of um, spreading in the region where the tumor started. Um, and, and even then, there are still... Uh, some other categories, but almost every one of our patients will see a radiation doctor as well as a surgeon, and about 15 or 20 percent of the time, we do not use radiation. In some centers, they're a little bit more aggressive about surgery alone without radiation, um, and it is a uh, it is an area where there is not a consensus. I think there are, is a consensus overall about what are these factors under the microscope and clinically that put you in a higher or a lower risk of reoccurrence, but there's no absolute consensus that, okay, at this point, everybody gets radiation. At this point, nobody needs radiation. And it's still something that different physicians can uh, have different opinions about. So thank you. Um, and um, for Dr. Neum, um, 
When staging Merkel cell carcinoma with sentinel node biopsy, is the use of a tracer as effective as blue dye for identifying sentinel, sentinel lymph node? So I think that's much better handled by Dr. Sondak because that's exactly his zone. Um, at many places, they will use both, though, um, and they, they both can add some, some pluses and minuses. But I also think Dr. Sondak would be probably quick to comment that that's probably a detail that patients don't need to be super worried about. But, Vern. Yeah, so indeed, I do the sentinel node biopsy procedure. Uh, uh, almost uh, certainly every single week for people with melanoma and Merkel cell cancer. And in general, we use both the radioactive tracer and the blue dye um, because each provides a, a complementary information. Of the two, there's no question it's the radioactive tracer that's much more important. That tells us where to look. The blue dye tells us we're looking at the right spot when we get close to it, but the radioactive tracer is the only way we can know where the lymph node is in the body to begin with. So in general, unless there's a specific reason not to, we use both of them. And... Uh, um, and that combination is better than either one alone in most cases. These are really great questions. I have to say this is a really great group of participants on this call today. I have to say you're really asking very thoughtful questions. So thank you. And our speakers are terrific as well. Um, so here's a question. Um, and again, um, I'm going to let our speakers decide who answers it. I think probably better. You're both better at making this call than I am. What is the role of Mohs surgery in treating Merkel cell carcinoma? <laughs> I think either of us can handle that. Um, okay, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll start just so we're, Vern and I are kind of alternating. I think we're both comfortable with this. So Mohs surgery is a lovely technique in which you can cut around a tumor and immediately under the microscope in a frozen section immediately see, do I see obvious cancer left at one edge or another of the tumor and then map back exactly where to go? There are two problems with using this approach for Merkel cell carcinoma. Um, one is often you need a sentinel lymph node biopsy done at the same time. And just for quirks of the way the world works, Mohs surgery is done by dermatologists who do not do sentinel nodes. And sentinel nodes are done by surgical oncologists like Dr. Sondak, who do wide excisions and sentinel nodes. So we're talking about needing two procedures. You'd have to do the sentinel node first with a surgical oncologist in an operating room and then go do the Mohs surgery. So that's logistically unpleasant. The second big issue is that Merkel isn't like most of the other skin cancers. Having a negative margin, like the pathologist says, I don't see any cancer at the edge, is nice. It's helpful, but it is absolutely not a guarantee or a near guarantee that the cancer won't come back locally like it is with the other types of um, skin cancer where Mohs surgery is really heavily indicated. So frankly, most Mohs surgeons I know who take care of Merkel do not do Mohs on the Merkels. They will be participating in the care, but they will just send them for the surgery typically to a surgical oncologist because of those two very significant issues that do not set up Mohs surgery well for managing Merkel cell carcinoma. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think this is, that's the wrong answer for most people with Merkel cell cancer. Mohs surgery has unique advantages in some cancers, and they just it just doesn't apply well to Merkel cell cancer. That's never we never say never, but the the, the average patient with Merkel cell should not be thinking about Mohs surgery. Excellent. Thank you. Gosh, okay. This is excellent. And we have another question from our online participant. Um, and um, so I'm, I'm going to um, give this to Dr. Sondek, um, but it may switch back and forth. I know. Um, that's fine as well. Um, but if a Merkel cell uh, carcinoma patient is antibody negative, how often should they be getting a PET scan after year two being cancer-free? So this is one of the many things that is uh, not standardized. There is no cookbook. There is no recipe. Our center is one of the largest Merkel cell treatment centers in the world. And if you've had a negative sentinel lymph node biopsy, um, we don't do a PET scan on you ever. And as far as the antibody test we don't actually use that at our center to make any decisions about scans or or not. Um, at other places, it's in in Seattle, it's used differently, and they have their algorithm. So it's not a uh, a simple answer. It's not a one size fits all. Um, and uh, I think one what is Facts, what are facts? We know that many uh, times if Merkel cell cancer is going to come back, it's most likely to come back within the first two to three years. That's not an absolute. You can't go back to your doctor and say, hey, I got to year three. I'm, I'm out of the woods. No, you're not up absolutely out of the woods, but most of the reoccurrences occur in the first two to three years. So it makes sense that whatever surveillance technique you and your doctor are using, it should be most intensive in those first two or three years. And if everything's looking good, we can slow it down after that. Even in our patients who have positive nodes where we use PET scans routinely, we use them less frequently and we see those patients less frequently after year three um, than before that. So that's the principle that I think we would want to um, take home is that indeed in an in an, a proper setting blood tests can be used to um to be part of the surveillance strategy we just don't happen to use that particular strategy at our center and the scans are useful and are used less often as patients get further out those are all things that we can agree on beyond that it, it, it is not the case that you could take any one person and say this is what they always have to do. Excellent. Thank you. And last question, which I'll leave for both of you to address. Or who, um, so the question is, um, is there any way to tell if an individual with Merkel cell cancer um, is, is caused by a virus or sunlight? Uh, yeah, I can tackle that one. So there are multiple ways to do that. Um, the only 
perfect way is a very, very laborious, non-standard way, and that's an extensive, complex genetic test where, where you actually look for the virus and you look for the number of mutations. That is the best way to tell, but that's not standardly done. Um, standard ways to do it are uh, you know, the blood test would be one approach. There are ways under the microscope that you can use an antibody to detect whether the virus is there or not. You're right about 80% of the time with that particular approach. It's not, it's definitely not perfect. Um, maybe the good news to a patient, though, is uh, it, for the most part, it's not essential to know whether you're virus positive or virus negative. The virus negatives tend to recur a little bit more, but it doesn't just change the way that, that a patient should be managed. So um, it's not a huge impact for the most part, whether it's caused by the virus or, or sunlight. But yes, there are multiple tests that can can determine that. Right, and I would, I would echo that. We do not discriminate based on the way your person got Merkel cell. We treat them currently, today, 2019, very, very similarly. We have shown quite clearly that both virus-associated and virus-independent Merkel cell cancers respond well to immune treatments. We think they also all respond, also respond well to surgery and radiation. And I think it's, it's very important. Both Paul and I have, have called for more research into the nuances. Can we learn about individualizing treatment based on viral status, but for today, everyone should get treated similarly, uh, and um, and so I don't think people need to worry too much. In Florida, where there's a lot of sunshine, we've found that we have fewer virus-associated cases and more ultraviolet-associated cases. Um, Australia also, Seattle, Michigan, other places, the ratio is a little bit reversed, and yet our numbers are, are in terms of responses and treatments and so forth, are, are really remarkably similar. So I think we'll learn even more about this as the future goes along, um, and, and it wouldn't surprise me if two or three years from now there are subtle differences in how we take care of somebody based on their viral status, but... Um, There'll never be major differences, and today there are essentially almost no differences. Excellent. I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. We could go on all afternoon, but I think we said this would be an hour program, and so um, I want to thank you. I want to also thank our participants who asked such great questions during the call, both on the phone and online. And in concluding, I just want to kind of wrap up by saying that I know some of you still have questions to get to have answered, and some of you asked your questions. For all of you, we would very much recommend that you go back to your treating healthcare team, both with any answers you received today, to check it out with your team, and also in terms of who you are, and they know all about you, and for those who haven't had a chance to ask questions. But because many of you also like to check credible sites to get information, I am going to suggest um, that you do um, check out the MerkelCellCarcinoma.org, um, and they will, will send you that uh, that information as well when the evaluations. And I also recommend the National Cancer Institute as a resource for you. Um, they have an 800 number as well as a website. Um, their website is 
cancer.gov, and to some extent, they have a live chat feature where you can post your question, and they will respond back to you um, pretty quickly. They are operating during business hours, the West Coast time, so basically, it's a, it's a nice resource to have. Um, and then all of the different organizations that we collaborate with, they're also good to call some the general cancer organizations, so American Cancer Society, um, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, many of them also have tremendous resources as well for you, and many others will be listing them when you get the evaluation. And for those of you who wish to pursue further help from cancer care, please go ahead and call our oncology social workers. We are not medical experts, so we're not able to answer medical questions, but we can provide you with some the support that you might need or helping you to direct you to other resources as well. Most importantly, as we conclude today, we don't want any one of you to feel alone in coping with Merkel cell carcinoma. Even though it may be rare, and perhaps you don't know anybody with this type of cancer and you're in, in where you live, whether it be in an urban area or a smaller town, it doesn't really matter. It's still, everyone at, at times does feel alone. And, but we don't want you to feel like you're totally alone because there are all these resources out there, and we want you to take advantage of them. Not only cancer care, but all the other resources I'm going to list for you because there's just a lot of help out there, and, of course, your healthcare team and the institution that you go to. So, um, I, again, I want to thank you for your participation today. We do have a part two to this program, which is going to happen on December 10th. It's for caregivers, um, practical tips for coping with your loved one's Merkel cell carcinoma during the holidays, and it's both for caregivers and for people living with Merkel cell carcinoma. All are welcome to participate in this program. So I want to thank you all and wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.